Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 2 this morning. Uh, Steph reminded me, like, yesterday when we were in chapter 1 and we were talking about just that idea that Jonah didn't have to say a word, and they came to him and asked about it, and she goes, Sean, you should have told about that guy in high school. Right after I got saved, I went to, I was living with my aunt in Woodbury, Minnesota, because I wanted to play football, and really didn't know how to talk about my faith. So I'm 16 years old in 10th grade, and and I kind of hung out with the athletes that were not the drink and party on the weekend athletes because I thought maybe that's more Christ-like to not do those things. So we were the go out to the movie and have a good dinner together group of people. And one of those guys, I was staying over at his house, and he just started asking me about God. He would just say, Sean, do you believe there's a God? And I'd be like, yup. And he'd go, well, what do you think that God's like? And it was just all that sort of thing. And I remember after... 10, 15 sleepovers at his house. Each time I came over, there'd be like one or two new questions. And I didn't really know how to share my faith, how to talk about my faith, any of those kinds of things. And what I did know is that I knew what I believed. And I was able to just kind of share that with him. And then he went on to become a pastor. Like he he actually was one of those kinds of people. And it wasn't because I did anything. Like God used me despite myself and my fear to even talk about my faith and all those things. But he wanted to know about the faith. And I just, what I love about chapter one is just there are people that come into faith that way. It really, they don't need somebody to, to witness to them. They'll ask you for everything. And it's such a treasure when you have those moments where you don't really have to like take any initiative whatsoever. God's just going to use you because you vowed to follow him. Um, which is the opposite end of the ministry spectrum from those people that go like out on the street corners and do that sort of thing. But God uses all different kinds of believers to reach all different kinds of future believers. I think that's neat. So today in Jonah 2, we're going to get to the second miracle of Jonah, which is the fish. This is the big one. I'll make some jokes that are a little fishy. Um, so the word now in the last sentence of chapter one, now the Lord had prepared when it says, so that's the resolution of a story. When it says now it's like verse one, chapter one, it starts the whole book with the word now, now is kind of the intro of the next chapter. So when they invented the, the chapter division titles, I think 17 was the first sentence of this section. Um, either way you want to structure it. Uh, there are other theories as to how that works, but uh, ver verses like if you put Jonah through the lens of positioning, it starts Jonah in a fish and then he leaves a fish and he ends up in Nineveh. And you can do each chapter of where Jonah starts, where he leaves, and where he ends up. Um, so, in, in, so there's ways to kind of frame that you can do it. So it says, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, we start our first controversy. It does not say that Jonah was alive in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. It says he was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. We'll debate that later. Some people may say that's an absolute apostasy. Um, but there are different ways to look at the book of Jonah. Here is the word fish. We had in this Bible study a young man who came and said there were errors in the Bible. And I love that. So I was like, tell me the errors. And this is one of the errors he brought up. Well, it says that he was, that the Lord had prepared a great fish. And then in verse two, it says, then Jonah, or the verse one of chapter two says, Jonah prayed to the Lord from the, his God from the fish's belly. And the two fish words are different words in the Hebrew. And he said, well, that's a mistake in the Bible because one's masculine and one's feminine. So how did he get eaten by a masculine fish and spat out by a feminine fish? It must be an error in the Bible which is kind of funny. And our Bible study got to see that I went back and did some homework on that. And the next week I was able to kind of do that. How many people were, Alyssa, you guys were. All right, so some people remember that. Those of you that don't remember it, I'm going to dig into that a little more today. But it's, these are the kinds of things that if people want to criticize the Bible, they can come up with these things. But then you look at it and actually take a good look at it and you realize not only is it not a mistake, 
Like, it's people really, if that's all you can find in a book this big, then this truly is a miracle of God in its perfection, in its quality, in every little piece of it. And I dug a little deeper this time and actually found some really cool things in those words. Like God was putting them there for us to find, uh, which is kind of neat. So the word here is not is is fish in chapter in the at verse 17 and verse one of this chapter. The word is fish. The Hebrews have a word for whale, and they don't use that word. And it even says the Lord prepared a great fish as though we're not talking about a whale here at all. We're talking about something very different, a great fish or a fishy fish of all things. But it's they use words here because they don't have a word for this particular animal. Now, um, the paleontologists have found bones of massive ocean creatures that were pre, like, Noahic, right? So we, we have found animals in the ocean that are extremely large that are not whales. Uh, so it seems like the animal itself prepared by God was a very special animal that God made for this particular purpose. That's fascinating. Like it was a storm, but no, it's a God storm in the last chapter. This is a fish, but it's a great fish in this chapter. It's something different and miraculous that's going on. The claim of the Bible is that this is a miracle that God did it, and we see that in, in verse 17 of the last chapter. The fish, then, isn't the issue. Can God do miracles is the issue. And if you believe God can do miracles, you don't struggle that much with God preparing a very special fish for this purpose. Not a whale, a fish. But we're going to get into what I would call, and, and I'm going I'm to unpack this fish piece as we get into this chapter, and then we'll get into Noah's prayer, right? Because most of this chapter, if you noticed, is a prayer. It's not dealing with the issue of fish. But if you want to attack the Bible, Jonah's a great place to attack because it is the Old Testament version of resurrection. So if you really want to attack Christ's resurrection, you should also attack Jonah's resurrection because you have to deal with that issue or you can defy it. But I would say that when it comes to those kinds of people, and this is a chance for us to gracefully and thoughtfully and truthfully learn how to deal with those kinds of critics, I'm going to call them the aha, aha people. Because they get that tone in their voice where like, aha, aha, I found something. Uh, and this is not my term. I did not make this up. David did, Psalm 35. They are ready to devour me and they say, aha, aha, we've got you. Like, I got you on this thing. Uh, or in Ma Mark uh, chapter 15, verse 29, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, saying, aha, you destroy the temple and you built it in three days. They're the mockers. They're the scoffers. They're like, I can't believe the Bible because it's stupid. Those kinds of people, right? And they're what I'm going to call the aha, aha people or a bumper sticker theologian. Like they're going to stake their eternal soul on a one sentence preposition, which is really dangerous to do. And it's kind of foolish, but they don't really have any depth or thought. They've heard a critique from someone else, probably somebody who's thought a lot more about it. And then they repeat the critique without thought. And I think that when we see those conclusions, we have to be really wary, especially as Christian college educated, most of us, we have to be really careful when Dr. Dryas Dust has a, a critic, a critique of the Bible, and then we go repeating it without doing our own homework. That's really dangerous stuff. Uh, and it does happen. So the first aha, aha of Jonah is that the whole thing's an error. So let's unpack the error. And then we'll get into the next aha, aha, which is that it's a fantasy story. And then the aha, aha, it's not even plausible. Right? So there's three aha ahas in Jonah. So let's take each one and we're going to unpack it. The first one is the, we'll, we'll dig into this. In verse 17, the last chapter, the word is dag or dog, D-A-G, right? In the Hebrew. That is the word. It is a noun for fish, but it's fish in a broad sense or a collective or plural version of the word. So when you say dog, you, you really mean this general prolific, fully fish nature kind of thing or the essence of fish. So when we see this in other places in the Bible, like Genesis 9-2, the exact same word dog is used for all the fish of the sea. It's, it's this collective massive amount, but it's impersonal, and it's all the fish that are in the world are dog, right? But then the Hebrews can modify that word, so that's the root word of fish. They can, and it's, by the way, this is gonna be kind of cool, it's the exact same word in the Canaanite language and in the Assyrian language, dog. It means fish. So it's, there's, these are kind of common cousin languages, right? 
Um, I should say that that version of the word dog is what we would call the masculine form of the word, right? That doesn't mean it's a male fish. We don't see any place in the Bible where all the fish of the sea is somehow all the male fish of the sea. So when I say the masculine form of the word, that's a linguistic element. And all words and languages have a masculine and a feminine form, and they do different things in different languages. Does this make sense so far? So then we get to chapter 2, verse 1, and it says the fish's belly, they use a different word. Aha, aha, it's a mistake in the Bible. The word that's there in the Hebrew is daga. Mm -hmm. Now, daga is a known or collective version of the word, and it is in the feminine form. That doesn't mean we're just talking about female fish. It means we're talking about a collective fish, or where dog, dog is the fish's, Daga is your fish or my fish or his fish or their fish. It's a possessive or a known quantity of the fish. So the masculine version is those fish and the feminine version is my fish. And we won't make jokes about greediness or anything like that. So, but it's the same root word. It's same kind of thing where it means fish in general. Other examples of where it's their fish or own fish is in Nehemiah 13, 16. Uh, Ezekiel 29.5, they use the word dagad to talk about fish that are owned. So when Jesus says, cast out your nets, this is in the Greek, so it's not the same words, but he'll say, cast out the nets and try to catch fish, that would be the dog version of the word in the Hebrew. But when they collect the fish and they become their fish, that's the dagad version of the word, masculine, feminine. This is kind of, I think this is cool because I'll keep building this. It's the same as in Spanish. And I think it's important for us to understand these things. I know I'm taking a long time with it. But in the Spanish, you've got masculine and feminine words that we get. And when I say the word cat in the Spanish, what is that? Gato. 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 Does that mean just the male fish? Because when I end a word with O in the Spanish, that's masculine form. It means just cat. Doesn't mean male cat or female cat. If I say, I mean, this is the only feminine word I could think of, cantina. Does that mean the cantina is a feminine because it ends with an A? No, it's just a cantina. It's a feminine form of the word. Is there a cantino? Not that I know of, and I don't know that there's a gata anywhere that, that I know of. So that's, I think, a, a, an example that's closer to how, because Spanish is so easy to see the masculine and feminine. It has nothing to do with gender unless you're looking at the Bible through a gender lens and all you see is gender. But the Bible doesn't tend to do that. Um, if it did, you could have some fun with it. Sheol in the Hebrew, hell, is in the masculine form. So women, you're off the hook. Because if, if you look at it, you could go through every word in the Bible and say, well, that has to do with men and that has to do with women. But that would be a horrible interpretation. You would be missing everything. Like it would absolutely taint your lens completely. So the aha, aha people say that there's an error here. It's not an error. It's that they don't, it's that they're stupid. They don't even understand linguistic techniques of masculine and feminine, and then they, it's just they're looking for problems. And if that's the best they can do, oh my goodness, I will stake my life on this book, not the words of whoever they listen to, because that's foolishness. That's the word of a man or a woman, I, I won't get gender specific there, saying that there's issues with the Bible, and then humans just wanting to believe it, so they go talk about it. It's like an urban myth. You, you propagate it because you want to not because you've based it in any truth. So a fish swallowed Jonah, <laughs> but I love this. His fish puked him out. Once the fish ate him, it became his buddy. It became his fish. And the word there is actually kind of, I, I, I think when you actually read it correctly, that's kind of beautiful. Like there's something happening here that the prophet of God becomes li likened with a fish and they become intimate. So what's actually interesting here if we can keep looking at the etymology of the fish word, what's really interesting here is the Hebrew and the Canaanite versions of the word dog, the root word, daga, our fish, dagon, the fish. The god of the Assyrians was dagon, the fish god, right? So this gets kind of like, whoa, this is kind of cool. Jesus, uh, um, this is important because this distinction is going to be something that helps us to understand the Ninevites in a really powerful way. I'm going to get into the fish. Right now, let's just put it to the side. The Ninevites worshipped a god called Dagon, and we'll get into that god later. But if you've got dog, daga, and dagon, there's a progression of the word fish here that goes right to a spiritual god battle. 
And in that sense, you're looking at the whale as very interconnected to Nineveh. God's using the whale to speak to the Ninevites. And that connection doesn't get overtly made in the Bible at all unless you read Hebrew. Then you would see the progression of dog, daga, dagon. And you'd see that as you read through Jonah. If you were in the Hebrew and you'd go, ah, I see what's going on here. But they don't explicitly make it. The other thing about this and saying there's an error here, if you say there's an error in Jonah, there's a catch to that. Because if you're like, oh, that must be a mistake then you are essentially saying that Jesus was saying something that was untrue. So you're making Jesus into a liar. I'll read what Jesus said. Luke 11:29. And while the crowds were thickly gathered, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign and no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the son of man will be to this generation. Jesus himself explicitly connected himself to Jonah through the sign of resurrection. So if this is a mistake or a fable or something like that, then Jesus was not telling the truth. Things start to break down when you do that to the Bible because the Bible really supports itself. So if you can hit it at any point, good luck with that. But if you can, then you start, the whole thing follow, falls like dominoes. You got Jesus lying over here and you've got mistakes over here and the thing kind of falls apart. So if we critique Jonah, we're at the same time critiquing Jesus, who basically called Jonah a historical figure. He called Jonah a prophet, which is really graceful of God, isn't it? This guy's a screw up and Jesus refers to him as Jonah the prophet. That's pretty graceful. So we even see the grace of God in that comment. Wonderful stuff. So, aha, aha, number two. Jonah's a fantasy. I thought this was a good chapter to do this in because uh, to be qu quite frank, it's a pretty short chapter for, for what we're doing. Uh, but I want to deal with the fantasy thing too. Uh, let me read J. Vernon McGee's quote on this. Unfortunately, many Christians thoughtlessly cast aspersions on this important book in the canon of scripture without realizing that they're playing into the hands of critics and innocently becoming dupes of the skeptics. We can do this with the book of Jonah. So if Jonah's difficult for you to absorb, how does a man live inside of a great fish? Then you got to kind of wrestle with that because the Bible puts it out in front of you and asks you to believe this. So that's a, a difficult thing. We have to be very careful about nonsense and repeating the nonsense of humans. I want to give you the many nonsensical interpretations of Jonah. Like I was, this was fun research. One, People critique Jonah by questioning his parentage. So you can get into ge meaningless genealogical arguments, as Paul says. Uh, calling Jonah a fantasy character. This is just fantasy. This is the Epic of Gilgamesh, right? Jonah dreamed the whole thing and wrote it down. That's one, this is, that's a Jewish critique. Um, what, some people crit critique this by saying that Jonah is really the Jewish version of the story of Hercules and the sea monster that the Greeks had written and they just wrote their own version of it. Um, but <laughs> it gets even stupider. Like I saved the stupid ones here. Actually what happened is Jonah was shipwrecked and the belly of the whale was a symbolic image of the island that he was stuck on. And the Ninevite ship in that critique had a fish figurehead on it because they worshiped Dagon. And that's why he called it the fish because he went down into the bottom of the boat and that was he thought he was in a whale with the fish thing um, and here's the best one Jonah actually took refuge on a dead floating whale and the floating whale washed ashore with him but he wasn't actually inside the whale all of these critiques have no historical evidence no written record they're absolute fantasy I think the irony is the aha aha people will create fantasies versus taking the first-person witness and claim of this book. Like, Jonah's authorship of this book is not really in dispute. So they'll make stuff up rather than believe what's written because they don't want to believe what's written. So Jonah is a historical figure. I forgot to read the 2 Kings 14 reference to you. It's worth reading. This is in a very historical passage. Uh, they, they restored the territory of Israel from the entrances of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. So this is in a large account of the kings 
and what's going on. There's nothing about the book of Kings that pretends to be or could be interpreted as a fantasy. Hamath is a real place. Ereba is a real place. Jonah's a real person coming from Gath Heifer, a real place. Like there's nothing about the Bible that, that sees Jonah as some sort of mythological figure. Uh, the kings he served under are both real and recorded kings. They're recorded in other places. Jeroboam is real. Amaziah is real. Um, and Jonah was somebody who was a known prophet to kings. So we have those kinds of things. But we get to the third, aha, aha. Aha, aha. It's not possible to live inside of a whale. That's a good aha, aha. It's like the aha, aha, people can't walk on water. And the answer is no, people can't. And no, you don't really survive inside of a whale that much, though there are people that would disagree with me that I'll share with you, is that the claim here is that God prepared a fish. God is doing something. This is actually a miracle, and that's what the Bible is claiming. So they're not saying humans can do this. They're saying God can make this happen if God wants to, and that's what the Bible asks you to believe, is that God created, and God can alter that creation, just like me with my Legos, right? So we have aha, aha, as, as impossibility, and there's three ways to deal with the impossibility. One is to say, I agree with the impossibility. Jonah is false, and this is an allegory, and I can draw spiritual lessons from it. That's progressive Christianity, right? That we don't need to think that it's real. We can just accept the imagery of it. And okay, if you want to roll with that, there's some things you can learn here. The first is God is all-powerful, and he can do these things if he wants to. The second way we can deal with it is, no, 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 I think it is true. Jonah survived and stayed alive inside the belly of a whale. That's the popular Christian perspective. It's the traditional Christian perspective, is that Jonah was alive. He hung out with some gospel singers. They sang songs. That's what happened inside the belly of the whale. There's a third perspective that's actually very, it's a long-term perspective, but it's always been the minority perspective. I believe it's the perspective that Jesus had when he said the sign of resurrection is the same one that you're going to get and that Jesus was actually dead for three days. They put a spear in him, water and blood flowed together. He was dead because people know what dead looks like even in the ancient world. And that Jesus says this is the same miracle. The third option to deal with this whole it's impossible thing is no, it's true. And he actually died and was a dead man inside of a whale. And so I'm going to kind of talk about each of the three ways the faithless way, I think, is the allegory, that prophetic image. Uh, people might say that's progressive because you're connecting science with whatever, and it's so old it's not even funny. I can go back to 409 AD. Augustine of Hippo is responding to this critique. Christians have dealt with this critique for a long time. And he says, the thing that's utterly impossible and incredible that a man is swallowed with his clothes on should have existed inside of a fish. I like that Augustine adds that his clothes are still on because mercy me, we don't want naked people. <laughs> Augustine admits he's asking about this because of the pagans, not the other Christians. It's the pagans with this critique. Questions such as these I've discussed by pagans amidst loud laughter and with great scorn. Oh, you believe a guy can get swallowed by a whale. They were doing this in 409 AD, not new stuff. So when people think they're all cutting edge with these beliefs, it's not cutting edge. It's super old, and they've been dismissed again and again and again by people who think. So there is a belief here that God can do a miracle. This is how Augustine handles this. As therefore Jonah passed from the ship to the belly of a whale, so Christ passed from the cross to the sepulcher or into the abyss of death. As Jonah suffered this for the sake of those who were endangered by the storm, so Christ suffered for the sake of those who are tossed by the waves of this world. That both are an image of resurrection and both are an image of there. Genuine faith doesn't come from fables and it doesn't come from excusing your reason or your ration. You don't have to put your brain to sleep to have faith. I disregard Kierkegaard, right? It's not how that works. What you do need to do is look at the sound doctrine of the word of God and, and see what it says and process that. So 1 Timothy 1.3, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in the faith. When we as Christians engage in these stupid debates, what do we become? We become stupid debaters. And it's a dangerous place to be because we're fighting on the grounds of idiocy and there's no winning those arguments. 
So it's best to just say, I just believe it's true because God's all-powerful and he can do that. I don't have an intellectual issue with that. End of debate. It's not worth getting into. But between us as godly people, let's get into the debate. Um, second piece is the true but God survived, or Jonah survived inside the belly of the whale. This is my wife's belief. So it's a, if you all love Stephanie, this is a belief that's perfectly okay, and it is the traditional belief of Christians. Uh, this is claiming that there's a miracle, because to stay inside alive, alive in the belly of the whale would require a miracle. Bellies have gases that are toxic, and there is no oxygen inside there. But whales have blowholes, so they could suck oxygen in, and he could, you know, scuba from the blowhole or something like that. The problem is, this is not the Hebrew word for whale. It's the Hebrew word for fish. There's, as far as we know, if we take it at its word, there's no blowhole in this thing. So you're actually inside of a belly of a great fish. Um, and the claim here is that it is a miracle. So some imply um, uh, that the Lord intervenes again by making this all happen, that the Lord provides oxygen or like an oxygen bubble around Jonah. So if oxygen bubble helps you work, we all get gas in our stomach and those bubbles burp up. So when God intervenes a second time and vomits Jonah out, that he was coming out with that kind of oxygen bubble. Um, and I'll give a little support. There is naturalistic evidence of people getting eaten by whales. And this occasionally happens. Oddly enough, it happened two weeks ago. So I don't know if anybody saw the story. You saw the story. Um, there are sperm whales and, and various white sharks that are big enough to take a human being in. Um, you know, it depends on how big the human being is. I'd like to see them try. Um, uh, whales do take air from blowholes. So if this is, by some reason, a whale, there would be minimal amounts of oxygen in there. So it's actually plausible if this is a whale, which is I, why I think the tradition does turn it into a whale, is because if you believe the traditional belief, you have to make this into a whale for the oxygen problem. Make sense? All right. Occasional stories do pop up. 1891 is the famous story of James Bartleby. Bartleby was eaten by a whale. Weeks later, he was able to talk again, and he recovered. And he traveled the world as the guy who was eaten by the whale and made a living off this. So after he died, his wife was interviewed, and his wife said, nah, he just made it all up. So it's been a disputed story. On the other hand, while he was alive, he was tell about it, and he had some physical features after whatever happened to him happened. He lost all of his hair, so this could be a medical disorder or something, and his skin bleached out with various yellow and brown spots, so he turned into kind of a white leopard. So people would look at him and see a freak of nature for the rest of his life. Never grew back his eyebrows, nothing like that, but he lived for years after it. His skin never returned to normal. Something happened to the guy to change him. So either he got sick or whatever, but he did make a living off of it, which puts his motives in, in question. And in 1891, we don't have really photographs or anything of this guy, but he's the famous guy that was eaten by a whale. Um, he went blind for the rest of his life, which would be true of stomach gases, right? One of the things to go would be your eyeballs. Um, and then you get in 2007, Raynor Shift. Uh, he was swallowed by a whale and spat out documented and witnessed by other people. And the funny part is, well, I'll just read this to you. Um, this is from two weeks ago. Uh, this is Michael Packard, uh, the guy that just got eaten by a whale. And the article's hilarious. <laughs> like, you read this and you're like, are you kidding me? The Cape Cod Times report says, 56-year-old Michael Packard says he was underwater. He was a, like a clam fisher guy. He was underwater and then he felt a shove or a push. And then things went completely black. And he realized that a whale was in the process of trying to swallow him. Uh, whales have smaller teeth. You can get past them because they do big scoopy bites. Great white sharks would be awfully hard to get in and out without major damage to the body. Um, here's a quote from Packard. I could sense I was moving, and I could feel the whale squeezing with the muscles of his mouth. <laughs> this is great. At first, Packard thought his attacker was a great white shark but he hadn't suffered any serious wounds that a shark's razor-sharp teeth would cause. And that's when he realized, I'm in the belly of a whale. <laughs> I was completely inside. It was completely black, Packard told the newspaper. I thought to myself, there's no way I'm getting out of here. I'm done. I'm dead. All I could think of was my boys. They're 12 and 15 years old. If, if you've had a near-death experience, this is a common thing. 
Billions of things go through your neurons when you think you're about to go. In fact, the phrase is, my life flashed before my eyes. It can happen in a second. So he's experiencing this, I'm dead, and he's thinking of his children, and this is all happening in half a second, right? Then all of a sudden, <laughs> he went, he, the whale, I don't know if it's actually a he whale or a female whale. Packard didn't stop to figure that out. He went up to the surface and just erupted and started shaking his head. <laughs> and I just got thrown in the air and landed in the water, Packard told WBZ television. I was free and I just floated there. I couldn't believe it. I'm here to tell about it. So Captain Joe Francis, who was working on the fishing boat nearby, told the television station he witnessed Packard's narrow escape. Then I saw Mike come flying out of the water feet first. <laughs> I love that detail. With flippers on and landed back in the water. So he just saw feet flying out of the water and flopping around. I jumped aboard the boat. I jumped aboard the boat. We got him up, his tank off, got him on the deck and calmed him down. And he goes, Joe, I was in the mouth of a whale. He goes, I can't believe it. I was in the mouth of a whale, Joe. Notably on websites for fisher folks, there are also instructions for what to do if you are ever swallowed by a whale. There wouldn't be instructions if this wasn't a known thing, that it does happen. So we put up instructions when there's possibilities of things, like this gun is loaded, right? We put up signs when that happens. So I want to read you the what happens if you get swallowed by a sperm whale. First of all, relax. Sperm whales vomit regularly. So just absorb that for a second. Relax. Number one, curl up into a ball. That's when your life flashes before your eyes. Number two, don't panic. Find something to grab. Three, <laughs> this is my favorite. Wear a protective neoprene suit. <laughs> something you do at the third step. Four, wait. <laughs> and five, don't swim with whales. <laughs> so the temptations there on my bucket list is at some point I want to swim with dolphins and uh, that apparently there are other people in the world that think I'd love to swim with the whales. I see the appeal, but the five is don't do that. I think they maybe reversed the order or did something out of order. So if you do decide to swim with whales, put on your neoprene suit or at least have it in your pocket so after you curl up into a ball, you can stretch that thing on. It's common enough to have a guide to get swallowed by the whale. So here's the thing. For those of you that think jo Jonah was alive in the belly of a whale, it's happened. It's been documented to happen. It's not like that weird of a thing. Three days and three nights? Now that's stretching natural boundaries. Because the experiences we have, people were spat up within minutes. They didn't stay in the belly that long. Uh, so this belly had a very upset stomach, but it was a special fish prepared by God. So we still have to deal with, even if you believe the naturalistic explanation, you still have to believe in the timing of it. Jonah was in the middle of a great storm and the fish was waiting for him. So that's a fish that's like a taxi cab. And you have to appreciate the three days and three nights as reflective of the actual timeline of Jesus. Like there's some things going on here that are absolutely miraculous, even if you accept the idea of, of people surviving inside of a great fish. So I want to get you to the third possibility, and then we actually will get on with sentence number two here. The third possibility with the fish situation is that Jonah actually dies and that he is dead inside of the whale and being absorbed and eaten. So this means that he prays in this chapter from the grave. And that's the thing you have to accept with that possibility, is that there is a life after death from which we can have thoughts. So then you lean on all the near-death experiences that are out there and everything else, or you lean on the life-flashing-before-my-eyes phenomena, where the brain moves hyper-fast when it's about to die. So this prayer we see in this chapter happens within moments by a man who knows the Word of God backwards and forwards, because nearly every sentence is a, is a citation of the Word of God and he's referencing things. So there is this idea that hell is the absence of the presence of God. 
So God gives Jonah what he wants. He wants to escape the presence of God. He gives him time in hell outside the presence of God. He gives him a taste of hell. And this is the second kind of salvation. The person that gets saved in this chapter is Jonah. And part of getting saved for him is to actually experience the end of his rope, actually experience the near death or the actual death of his existence. So Jesus accepts this is true, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. The only difference is location. But he says, so as. So I, I believe this is Jesus' perspective or interpretation. Uh, both are then miraculously resurrected after three days and three nights, right? So both are gone, both come back, we know Jesus' story and the, the, the way in which that's meticulously recorded, and they both continue to exist after death. Jesus conquering sin and death and hell, Jonah like praying for dear life. But they're both in that, they're both in a cognitive state in that moment. Um, in Jonah 2, verse 1, it says, out of the fish's belly. In Jonah 2, verse 2, do you see that it says, out of the belly of hell or Sheol, depending on your Bible? They're used interchangeably. And I just want to point that out. So there is a literal death in 2.1. There is a, a spiritual death in verse two or chapter 2, verse 2. There is then life after death. And I think no matter which interpretation you use, that's something we accept as believers. The Hebrew tradition is that he died and rose again. Most Hebrews believe this is resurrection. It's the major debate between them. It's the major debate between liberal theologians and traditional theologians today. Is there actually resurrection? Is there actually life after death? So some compare Jonah to Paul, not Jesus, because both were on the wrong path. God did a, did a miracle for both. Both would have been blinded in their experience. Both had their sight returned. Both were sent to a major city, Nineveh and Rome. And both were in a storm uh, on the sea when this happens. Uh, all of these, I think, compare the two with the scenery of the story, but not the point of the story. And that Jonah and, and, and Paul are very different in those kinds of ways. Uh, Jesus compares the Jews to the Ninevites as an evil generation. Both Jesus and Jonah are three days in hell. Both of them uh, conquer it or come back from it. Um, Jonah by relying on God. Jesus by relying on himself. So they both rely on God. Both include a man laying down their life for other people. Both are then freed after death. Both see generation, uh, Gentiles repent all over the place. Um, in fact, both of them see millions, if not thousands. The only prophet greater than Jesus when it comes to numbers of conversions is Jonah. If you think about it, most of the prophets didn't convert a lot of people. Jonah converts an entire city of people. Jesus converts an entire planet of people and, and is still not even complete in that. So the fact that all of Nineveh converted, that's un paralleled anywhere in the Bible. Even the disciples didn't convert entire cities. They got groups of Christians from those cities, but not the whole city. Um, so in that sense, Jonah's the most successful prophet in the whole Bible. And he goes through this experience. So the only difference between uh, Nineveh and the work of the disciples is that Nineveh repents and Paul gets stoned, right? So Jonah's extremely successful. Three days and three nights, it should be pointed out because this is another aha, aha thing. Three days and three nights, any part of a day, even one hour of a day, counts as a day in the Hebrew workings. So you can die on Thursday night, that's one day, Friday, and then rise on the next day, or wait, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Oops, I'm screwing up Easter. So you can die on a Friday night, be in the grave for Saturday, and wake up on a Sunday morning, and, and that would count as three days. Does that make sense? So that helps if you're trying to survive Jonah in a whale for a period of time. So God chooses this approach to speak to the world in both cases. Um, so digest that a little bit. Take that in. I didn't even get a groan. All right. Verse 1. Then Jonah prayed from to the Lord, his God, from the fish's belly. Then being everything I just got done talking about. So he gets eaten, he's cognitive for pray. The transitional part of the story is the prayer. Notice how few verses are put onto the fish. That's not the point of Jonah. But that's the point that all of that debate comes from. The point of Jonah is this prayer that we got coming up. Um, so the word there is um, 
when he cries out, the, the Hebrew there is that this is a cry as though he's trying to survive. So this is his, oh God, help me kind of thing. And for Jonah, which shows the gifting this guy had, the oh God, help me, which is all I could probably get out, his is like a chapter of the Bible that comes out. Of, if that, of when it says he cried out, that implies that this is this piece. The all, other thing is he cried out uh, or prayed to the Lord is a retrospective or past tense, which is an indicator that he's writing this after the whole story is over. Just a point. I'm picking on Jonah a lot, but the fact that he writes this book says that he does have a change of heart after the book is over. He ends the book with him as a failure. But the fact that he writes the book and he's the, uh, the author of this book says that he learns some things from it. So he's trying to share that to us. So when he says, then Jonah pried, cried, prayed out to the Lord or cried out to the Lord from his God from the fish's belly, um, he's, he's doing this in retrospect. So he mashes everything up. And this is, I think, a prayer that comes out all at once, but he takes us through a Bible study. This is the Bible study that saved his life. Um, verse 2. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. That's a reference to Psalm 18.6 would have been written when he was alive. So Jonah would have known that by heart. Everything that he quotes is stuff that was already written in part of the, the temple records and the temple scrolls. Uh, Sheol means grave or hell. It's the place of the dead. It is not a place where people get digested. It is a place where dead people go. And that's very clear in the Hebrew, which is why most Hebrews see this as a resurrection story. Um, he may be pulling from Psalm 88.6 here too, uh, written by, I, I, you know, appropriately, the sons of Korah, who are the descendants of those Korahites that were swallowed by the earth. And he uses similar language, and they write a song like that, Numbers 16.32. Um, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption, Psalm 16.10. Uh, God can pull people out of hell. That's a concept we get here. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down to the pit, Proverbs 1.12. That supports the he was alive theory, that it could go either way and God can do either thing at the end of the day. There's a physical death, there's a spiritual death. Uh, it, it, is, it is confirmed throughout the Bible. The dark is the absence of light and hell, according to, to Jewish theology, is the absence of God. And that when God truly leaves and gives up on a person, that's when they experience that kind of hopelessness or the home of the dead people is that place. So you heard my voice. Another great theological principle right here in Jonah. If we pray and God hears our voice, that means the God of the universe hears us when we pray. I still have trouble putting my brain around that. Why would, if an ant in the backyard started praying, I wouldn't even know the ant existed. How does God hear my prayer? How powerful and mighty is a God that hears all of our prayers and the prayers of millions of people around the world every day and then intervenes to answer many of those prayers? How impressive is that? How mighty is our God? Like we should sit down and write some psalms about that and just celebrate how big God is. God answered, heard my voice. Verse three, you cast me into the deep and into the heart of the seas and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Psalm 42, seven. The sailors didn't cast him out. God cast him out. He doesn't blame the sailors. So when we run, God's working on us. Jonah has one at a time said, God, whatever you want, but then he runs from God and God's still working on him. So the focus is, the focus on Jonah is where this should be. It's about Jonah and God, and Jonah frames it that way, even though the narrative doesn't. Verse four, then I said, I've been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. That's a quote from Psalm 31, 22. He's just quote, this is like awesome how he does this. Do you know people like this that have the word memorized that well? And they can just do whole paragraphs in scripture. It's amazing. So he does the proper response in bad situations as he turns towards God. When life is at its end and everything is broken, the only thing you can do is turn towards the light, even though everything looks dark. This is the basic plot line of all great adventure movies and books and stories. It is the plot line of a number of people that come into the kingdom after being totally broken and destitute. Right? And praise God, many of us didn't have to be that broken to come into the kingdom. Like chapter one was good enough for a lot of us. 
But for some people, that chapter two moment, that I'm dead, I'm as good as dead anyways, I might as well turn to Yahweh. That's a whole different kind of thing. So there's a heartache that comes out, I think, in chapter five, in verse five, the waters surrounded me, even to my soul. It wasn't just the physical waters. It's my soul itself was darkened and the waves surrounded me. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Vivid image. The weeds could have came before or after the whale eating. I don't really care enough to dig into it. Uh, but this image, have you ever been kind of wrapped up in weeds, get your feet caught in them when you're trying to swim? And it's scary. Even one little of those weeds, you think, oh crap, I could be in trouble here. Or getting tied up in your blankets and your wife rolls over and pulls them. And you're like, you know, and you think, I got to get out of here quick. For Jonah, this is the moment of hell when he thinks of the church. He thinks of the holy temple in the middle of bile and whale gas and vomit juice. He thinks, Lord, I need you better than this garbage I'm in. The weeds wrapped around his head is where we get the phrase, I was lost in the weeds. Uh, the temple then is where he comes out. When he thinks of the temple, remember what happens at the temple. It is not only this beautiful white stone thing on the hill in Jerusalem. It's where you go for the feasts, so it wafts the fragrance of barbecue while he's smelling whale gut. It is also where all the teachers hang out, because you could go into any of the colonnades and there'd be multiple teachers. So you walk into the temple and they're teaching the book of Kings and they're teaching the book of Genesis and you just kind of walk to whatever book you want to work on every day. Every day you could go into the temple and there would be Levites teaching various chapters or various books of the Bible. How awesome is that? It's really never been repl replicated in human history. You know, we only go once a week. These people were going every single day. You could just go in and hear the word of God whenever you needed it. He's thinking of that while he's citing verses, which means Jonah has spent some time in that temple, right? He doesn't even have like like things to memorize with like we do. He just got to sit and listen to it being taught. Also, I think it's important to note the prayer that happens in the temple round the clock. There's prayer warriors in the temple. There was a group of women when, at the tabernacle that Moses had set up, and those women, all they did is sat outside the tabernacle and prayed all the time. So it was the prayer warriors that sat and did that job for the tabernacle. I imagine there were women at the temple that would pray for you anytime you needed it. And there was just this beautiful sense. Food, feasting, prayer, worship, Bible study. That's what he think of, thinks of from the Bible of the Whales. Like, I just want to be there one more time. Verse 6. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you've brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. There's no pit that God can't pull us out of. Such a hopeful message. Like the, the images here, Jonah can say this prayer while he's in hell because he knows Jonah can actually pull people out of hell. Jesus actually conquered hell. We don't even have to be scared of that. When the bars close behind me forever, we can still pray to the Lord. This gives rise to an entire segment, mostly Catholic, that you can pray people out of hell and that God's judgment is somehow temporary. I don't know if that fits with the rest of the Bible. I think that's taken this verse way out of context and making a whole theology around a phrasing here that's clearly being pulled from this image of being in a whale. So if you're in a whale, maybe God can save you from there, but I don't know if that counters God's decision that he's already made. The moorings are things that go deep into the water where there's secure earth at the bottom. Even though the water's washing around, there's moorings that are stable and unmovable in the middle of that water. Um, it, it strongly implies that if those moorings go down to the earth and he faints and his life is gone in verse 6, this strongly implies that he died and that he's describing death. The soul fainting is more than just losing conscious physically. It's that the soul itself has lost consciousness. So there's this idea here that uh, when the soul faints, that you're actually losing your soul or it's actually left you. God can breathe life into dead people just like Lazarus. And that Lazarus. So he does then do this with Jonah too, however you frame that. He can also do this with you and me. 
our life can be backslidden. Our life can be outside the reach of God and we can wake up every morning and say, God, breathe new life into me. Make me new again. And God can just do that with a breath every single day. Beautiful image. I remembered the Lord. My prayer went up. This is a soul that survives this moment. Verse eight, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. <laughs> Strong insight into what he thinks of the Ninevites here. Like these people worship worthless things. Worthless idols there could be translated worthless vanities, things that people are proud of. Um, and it makes you wonder what Jonah believed that was worthless. If he's reflecting on himself in this moment of death, what were the things that a prophet of God serving the king could believe that would be a worthless vanity? That he's special, that he's more important than sailors, that he doesn't need to go to Ninevites if he doesn't want to, that he can counter the will of God? There's a lot of worthless vanities that we've already seen in chapter one. So he does this to save himself. He admits his sin. Some people believe it's not the moment he talked to the sailors that was the, the turning point for Jonah. It's this prayer that was the turning point for Jonah because of that verse. Is that he believes and admits his sin and names it. God, I believed in worthless vanities and you brought my soul up from that dead spot. So by admitting his sin, naming it and telling it to God, he's repenting of that sin and God can pull him out of death. Verse nine, but I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving, and I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Some say then this is the turning point. This is that repentance prayer from Jonah. Um, I think salvation is God's business, and we should be actively pursuing that salvation our whole life. It is not a magic prayer. That's what I was grown up taught in my church. You say a magic prayer, and you're saved forever despite what you do, because God would never go back on your magic prayer. I think this idea is, is a deceptive one because we should be working out our salvation with, with fear and trembling, as Paul says, all the time. And it should be an active pursuit that we have. It says, I will sacrifice to you. What's Jonah talking about there? What does he have to sacrifice from the belly of a whale? The only thing that's left is himself, his heart, and which makes you wonder if he has clothes on or not, but we won't get into that debate, right? God asks for your allegiance Jonah says, I'll give it to you. I love that he says, I'll pay what I vowed because then this is a repentance story from somebody that already gave their life to the Lord. It implies that we can backslide and fall into sin. We can turn it around with a prayer and we can start over again. There's hope even for, because some people give their life to the Lord, then they screw up and then they feel like it's devastating. It's like a shame cycle. This is a great verse because I will pay what I vowed means I'm going to go back to my vows and keep them. And God accepts that gift and sacrifice from us when we renew those vows. It's a very important thing to do that on a regular basis. I know people that backslide and then they actually want to get baptized again because they want to tell the world that they're taking these vows one more time and they're doing it. It's a beautiful thing. So a living sacrifice is always and has always been the idea of the Bible. And in Jonah, we see a great example of that. The choice to give our life to follow God is regardless of, of how we think or what we think the outcome should be. We're just going to follow the Lord. And we're going to stick to that religiously. Nothing else is worth religious following. But that idea of we're just going to do what the Lord says. Ezekiel 2.3, And he said to me, Son of man, I'm sending you to the children of Israel to a rebellious nation that's rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed me to this very day. What Ezekiel says about Israel is what Jonah's saying about Nineveh. And when he says, I'll pay what you've asked me, it's a future tense word promising God future action. I will do tomorrow or today, if I can survive the morning, what you want me to do. At least I'm going to do it. So that service, that action that comes with that change of heart, it says with thanksgiving in verse nine, there's three ways to give. You can give with a cheerful heart, you can give with a grudging heart and you can give with a heart out of need. And he's basically saying with thanksgiving, I'm going to give the right way. God doesn't want your gifts if it's grudging and he doesn't want your gift if you feel like you have to do it or it's out of need. It's a very, very clear distinction. He wants your gift when it's just a bounding generosity. Like when you say, I'm just doing it because I just want to get, I just love you guys and I want to give you something. That's the point where, of which we give. Salvation is of the Lord 
That's a theme that's not just in Jonah, it's throughout the entire Bible. Salvation is the Lord's. He gets it. We don't create it with our own works. We don't generate it by following some formula. We don't have to pray five times a day and face Jerusalem or Mecca. Nothing we do makes salvation. God gives it to who God gives it to, period. God picks, we serve the gift of thanksgiving. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what God gives to us. We give him our life, he gives us our life. Kind of just and fair, it fits. Uh, It's one thing to say this kind of vow, it's another thing to do it. And that's chapter three and four. Jonah's gonna get his chance. When we volunteer to serve God, we don't pick the assignments, we don't pick the stations, we don't pick the duties. We just say, I'll serve you, Lord, and, and I'll do what you've put on my heart to do. So this is the essential nature. There's a lot of steps for Jonah to repent. In chapter 1, verse 9, he fears God. Chapter 1, verse 12, he denies himself. Chapter 2, he prays. Chapter 2, verse 9, he renews his vow. You see the progression? It's not a one-step thing. It's a change of heart that can happen over time, as it does in this book. So there's lots of ways to repent, lots of ways to mature, lots of ways to grow in our following of God. Four miracles in Jonah. The storm, the fish the city, and the plant. This is the miracle of the fish. And somebody gets saved in the fish. There are people that get saved when they're at their wit's end or they have a near-death experience. And Jonah's the person that gets saved in this miracle. So in chapter one, the sailors get saved. Chapter two, Jonah gets saved. Chapter three, Nineveh gets saved. We'll save chapter four for chapter four. So the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is a colorful verse. Uh, It's where you start to think you can't keep a good man down. Backslidden prophets taste the same either way. The the word so, verse 10, is causal. It's because of Jonah's prayer that he gets vomited out. The word so is a really important word there. It's a major doctrine of divine responsiveness that goes on there. When we pray and God intervenes, there's divine responsiveness. The word so has that all packed into two letters in the English. The Lord spoke to the fish. It's not the fish that does this. The fish is obedient to God in vomiting. Luckily, this is an animal thing. There's no human example of it. Um, But apparently God can ask for this from us too, but at least he does for a fish. God commands the fish as an agent of death to now be an agent of life. There's no indication that the fish debates with God. So fish don't debate with God, just a lot of times like animals don't debate with their masters. It's really only humans that debate with God because we're prideful and we've eaten of the the wrong tree, so to speak. So returning to service takes a little humility. After three days and nights in the belly of the whale, we know a few things about his skin. It too would probably lose all its hair. He too would probably be blinded. Uh, He would be somewhat anemic because he has not eaten. And the bile and the vomit and the gases inside the belly would have began to decay his skin very quickly. In other words, he looks something like a zombie. Like he's put on a whole new demeanor. He used to be the finely dressed prophet of the king, but he comes out probably with half-eaten clothing and digested skin. He probably looks something like from from The Walking Dead. Like this guy would have looked scary. And imagine him coming up. Your fishers, your Ninevite fishermen hanging out on the shore you know, a few days walk from Nineveh, but you're there at the Mediterranean doing it. And out in the distance, you see like a fish pop up out of the water and then flippers in the air and just flop. And you see this thing swimming towards you. He gets up and he's got seaweed still wrapped around his head. And he just kind of steps up on the dock and and he's just dead. And he looks like it, white eyes. This is a scary image. He's walking towards you. And of course, as Ninevites, you worship the fish man, the fish god, which we'll get into. You can't even say anything to this guy. Like, where did this guy come from? Is this Dagon come from the sea? So if you're a smart fisherman, you start following this thing, just like the disciples started following Jesus. If you think this is God, you would like to know what God has to say. So I'm guessing as Jonah makes the trip from the shore to Nineveh, a small crowd starts to gather around the fish man half digested, half eaten, going the way God's told him to go. And, and, he's, and he's probably not looking so snappy anymore. 
<laughs> and what he says is repent. Like at that point, you'd repent. Like, okay, I repent. That's all it takes for me. It says he vomited Jonah out. Not much pride to be had. You can't exactly act like the prophet of the king when you just got vomited. Whales do vomit naturally as part of their digestive process, which means that the digestion has happened. So this guy is obviously going to suffer for the rest of his life from skin disorders and bleached out things. And uh, we have no idea if, if he had eyesight afterwards, other than it says he wanted to watch what would happen from the hill. So he probably got his eyesight back or God miraculously maintained it. He returns to service. He does it with humility. Again, to pick up these things, I don't think kids pick this up when you read through Jonah. For Jonah to get back to the service of God, he has to lower himself to the level of vomit. And I know for me, that's there. I, I, I love the story when we moved to a new town and we moved back to the Twin Cities. Grant was on the worship team at our, our last church. And we're like, look, when we get here, Grant, just look for anything you can do in the church. If the trash needs to be taken out, we take out the trash. So we need to vacuum. Then we, wherever the need is in the church, we got to just be humble enough to fill it wherever that is. And we'll serve there. And two weeks later, they needed a guitarist on the worship team. So God knows what he's doing. And we just kind of like that idea. But when we come into service to the Lord, it's out of humility. What needs to be done and how can I help? So the dishes need to get picked up. God bless you for picking up the dishes. Things need to get swept up. There's glass that was under the couch. And when somebody just grabs a broom, God bless you for just taking care of it and doing it with a thankful heart. So he's thankfully vomit walking is what he's doing here because he's not dead. You ever notice the most humble people in the church tend to come from places that were the worst and God uses them the most because they can't take any credit for what they've done. They know how broken they are and how broken they were. Comes on to dry land, so that's locative. He came from the fish, out of the fish, and now he's on dry land. Dry land's better than the fish. And I love that attitude by new believers. Anything's better than where I was. So I'm happy to do whatever because it's better than where I was. And how much more can I be here? And that sort of thing. So he's walking around with his stinky clothes, bleached skin, bleached skin, and he's got vomit cologne going. So he smells to high heaven. Alyssa would hate the smell because it would be very fishy. Um, it's about a 375-mile hike to Nineveh from the shore. With the bleached skin and Mediterranean sun, would come sunburning. So we should note that the suffering of Jonah continues after salvation. The pain he's going to experience from that, unless he had a nice ball cap, his head is probably getting, the hair's gone with white skin. He's burning like an, albain, uh, an albino guy, right? With, with his skin totally compromised to be able to defend itself. He's burning to the point of peeling, which would further aggravate and amplify his zombie appearance. When he walks into Nineveh, he does not look human anymore. No way does he look human anymore. So I think we should have that image in our head. Again, it doesn't fit well into Veggie Tales, um, where he's a nice green piece of celery or whatever he is. Um, we should understand that in real life, uh, there would be extreme pressure and abuse on that skin at this point. It's not God's purpose to punish Jonah here, but to condition Jonah and put him in a condition that will speak to the Ninevites. In his, even his appearance is going to be a message to the Ninevites that will strike right to the core when we get into that tonight when we do chapter three. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for Jonah. Uh, what he endured and suffered is beyond our understanding but we appreciate that he wrote it down for us. What humility he writes this story with. What writers paint themselves as the antagonist uh, requires a deep and a sincere humility that Jonah's starting to develop here. Lord, some of us maybe came from a place of hell and the way we came to you was out of the depths. Uh, Lord, it wasn't the storms that got us or the discontent that got us, but that near-death experience and realizing that we are on a path of destruction that will kill us. And Lord, if that's what it takes to get us to you, amen to that. We got friends and family that need to, to know the joy of the Lord too. And if that's what it takes to get them there, Lord, may they survive it. 
And may they get through at the other end and serve you with humility and grace and love and a cheerful and a thankful heart. Lord, we love what you do in our lives. We pray that you bless this day in front of us. Lord, help us to have just a great retreat uh, and to, to be ready to go for chapter three tonight. Uh, continue to work on our hearts and prepare our hearts because Lord, we know you do that, we don't. It's not the teaching, it is the word of God and the message that we're being taught. So Lord, help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see. Uh, may you bless this time in fellowship. May we just as a, a body of believers, Lord, may you just be here among us um, we gather in your name, Lord, and we do it in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. So protect this space and make it a space where we can refresh, renew, and have our spirits ready to go for the trials and storms that are coming. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.